This episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is brought to you by Who's Your Devil, supporting and promoting Roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, Who's Your Devil offers a variety of services, including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit them on social media or at whosyourdevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Who's Your Devil? Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Hunter Berry is an East Tennessee native who grew up in a hotbed of traditional music surrounded by some of the best bluegrass artists in the country. A prodigy performer, he was offered a job by Hall of Famer Doyle Lawson when Berry was just 14 years old. He has spent most of his professional years as the fiddler for Rhonda Vincent and the Rage and has one of the most identifiable fiddle styles on the current bluegrass scene. In this episode of Walls of Time, Daniel and Hunter talk about Hunter's early influences, how he created his style influenced by the great Benny Martin, Paul Warren and today's great fiddlers and about life on the road with Hall of Famer Melvin Goins and Doyle Lawson and the Queen of Bluegrass herself. Let's join Daniel and Hunter on the campus of East Tennessee State University where Hunter is also a professor within their Bluegrass Music Program. How'd you get the gig with Doyle? Um, well, I was at... <laughs> That's uh, a funny story, actually. Because that's the first time a, a lot of people heard of you on a national scene. Right, correct. So, um, when I was uh, 15, I think I just turned 15, I started performing with Melvin Goins in Windy Mountain. He lived four hours from here uh, uh, in the East Tennessee area. He lives in Catlettsburg, Kentucky. So, from East Tennessee to Ashland, Kentucky, right outside of Ashland, is about four hours. And my dad would take me to meet the bus and come back home and come back in two days and pick me up or sometimes dad would ride the bus with me with us but uh, so Doyle got to know me while I was playing with Melvin Goins in the year of 2000 um, and but Doyle had called prior to that um, when I was 14 somebody really? gave Doyle my name and he called, and of course, he my parents answered the phone, and he said, "Can I speak to Hunter? Hunter Berry live there?" And they said, "Yeah." He said, "Can I speak to him, please?" So I, they hand me the phone, and they can't believe, because they know who Dole Lawson is. I've been to his, we've been to his festival at Denton and so forth, seen him at uh, um, Slagle's Pasture here many times, and uh, he says, uh, "Son," he said, "How long have you been playing the fiddle? What kind of music do you like?" and all this stuff, and he said, I'm looking for a fiddle player. Is it something you'd be interested in? I said, well, Mr. Lawson, I said, I certainly appreciate the the offer and the opportunity. But I said, I'm only 14 years old and in school, and he laughed. He said, really? He had no clue. <laughs> he had no idea. He just no. heard the tape, had no idea how old you were. Well, I guess so. Well, and uh, Dole lives in Bristol, so which is only 15, 20 minutes from Elizabethan. I'm assuming he probably got my name uh, uh, from uh, someone without ever hearing me or seeing me yeah. play, perform. So, um, But I was with Melvin uh, uh, in the year of 2000, and, and we played some of the same venues and festivals that Dole was playing. And so, uh, <clears throat> and of course, our first thing, I, when I seen Dole for the first time on the road, I said, you remember I calling that little 14-year-old Elizabeth? And, and, uh, but this was only... Um, like a year and a half later. Yeah. It wasn't that. And uh, went on the road with Doyle for, in 2001, January of 2001, when I went on board with Doyle and was with him for about nine to ten months. What was, the, what was that experience like, getting to play fiddle with Quicksilver? It was an amazing experience. Because um, Doyle's music at that time, it, he'd really, I mean, Quicksilver is always a headliner, but they had really kind of were one of the top bands. Had kind of had a second or third or fourth resurgence, or however many right, you know. Exactly. He peaks all yeah, the time, yeah. but he, he had a you know looking back, especially r- truly a really special group at that time. Yeah. Um, it was Barry Scott uh, and Jamie Daly um, on guitar, and they would switch off on guitar and bass, and um, along with Dale Perry on banjo. It was a it was a great opportunity for myself. Uh, of course, I was definitely a greenhorn 
to say the least. Um, but I, I really enjoyed uh, Doyle's music. You know, Doyle hasn't always been known for being a traditionalist, so to speak, and that has kind of been what my fiddle playing has been based off of. Um, uh, and so it was, uh, some thought it would be an odd uh, position for me, but it was a great learning experience. And Doyle is very um, uh, uh, well, intentional with his music. Yeah. He has a particular sound he's looking for. He's very deliberate. Yeah. yeah exactly. And if you have a if you have a hesitation in, in, in figuring out what he wants, um, he can grab your instrument and say, This is what I need and he can, he can play it himself. And so um it having that opportunity, having had the opportunity for him to show me things, um and mold me and show me what he thought was good and and, and, and uh and what he thought was bad, what he wanted me to do, what he didn't want me to do. Yeah. And uh, I remember being really scared. Yeah. But I, going back and listening to some of the live shows, it, it definitely sounds a lot smoother than it felt at the time. It was probably good, too, you being that young, to have someone that's such a teacher like Doyle, that, like as you said, is going to take the time to show you exactly what you need um, and, and kind of let you see that, just because he wants it different doesn't mean it's bad. It's just maybe not what exactly he was expecting. Well, that's true. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, the fiddle players that he had had played on a lot of his records uh, prior to was Sam Bush was playing fiddle on some, Bobby Hicks, and Mike Hartgrove. And these are fiddle players that I hadn't really heard. Uh, well, I'd heard a lot of, but I hadn't really studied much. Um, uh, at this point, I really had only studied – um, Benny Martin and Paul Warren and Kenny Baker, uh, Benny Sims and Howdy Forster, um, and uh, probably not a whole lot uh, past that. And uh, so it, that's a pretty good list, though. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, <laughs> I think it gave me a great foundation to build upon, no doubt. Yeah. Um, but again. The recordings that uh, Bobby Hicks was on and Mike Hartgrove and such, they were not, uh, you know, of the traditional uh, uh, type that I was, I was used to. So it was it was fun to get to know those different styles and get to learn. And of course, I mean now Bobby Hicks's fiddle playing is considered traditional style fiddle playing, um, but he's a double stop king, and it was a, a pleasure to learn and continue to learn his stuff. You mentioned how you're into a lot of the traditional older style fiddle fiddlers like uh, uh, Paul Warren and Kenny Baker. Um, what got you interested in that really hardcore traditional style of fiddling, especially well, for someone of your generation? You don't see that pop up too much. Yeah. Well, here in East Tennessee, uh, there's a lot of uh, really good musicians, good musicians that um, have may never play on a circuit. Some of them have played some on the circuit. Um, and a lot of them have, uh, have families and, and, and uh, yearn for a simpler way of life. And so uh, they just simply decided not to, not to take their talents on the road. <clears throat> I had the opportunity to uh, grow up playing with uh, Jerry Keys on banjo yeah. um, and his wife Susie Keys on bass, uh, who played with... Um, uh, Paul Williams and Victory Trio. Oh yeah. Um, also, along with um, Keith Williams, was a, also a member of that group playing fiddle. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a, a, I was very lucky and fortunate to surround myself with uh, musicians who um, um, had a uh, a good idea of of good music and a good foundation of music. And I mean, I could have been paired up with anyone uh, and and their influences would have probably made me a completely different fiddle player right mm -hmm. so um but being around these uh very good local musicians uh gave me an opportunity to to learn and and jam with these guys every chance I got and I feel that's where a lot of my learning came from um, also, along with taking a few lessons from David Yates, who's a local guitar player, uh, banjo player now, uh, fiddle player, bass player. He's a top session musician around here. And um, it was uh, uh, an honor and a blessing to get to learn from him. And I started taking lessons from Benny Sims 
to begin with. Wow. Now, Benny taught here at Merrill Music Store in Johnson City, and um, to me, he was just an old guy at the local music store giving fiddle lessons. Little did I know, uh, a few a few months after he passed away, uh, I learned that he was a fiddle player that played with Flatt & Scruggs. He was actually the first fiddle player that played with Flatt & Scruggs from early 50, uh, pardon me, early 48 to late 51, 52. And um, he recorded um, Salty Dog Blues. In fact, he was the first person to sing lead on a Flat Scruggs record besides Lester, which was the <laughs> Salty Dog Blues. He was the fiddle player on Pike County Breakdown, Foggy Mountain Breakdown. And um, <clears throat> took lessons from him a while, took lessons from David. Uh, and I got around these local musicians. And um, I happened to go to a small festival in Unicoi, Bluegrass Festival, it was none too successful. There weren't many people there. And the only band that showed up um, was a three-piece band out of uh, uh, Tipton Hill, uh, Marshall, North Carolina. And the name of the, their little band was the Tipton Hill Boys. And uh, that band consisted of Chris Sharp um, on guitar, uh, Kevin Sluter on bass, and George Buckner on banjo. Now, Chris later on went to play, uh, moved to Nashville and played uh, with Josh and Kenny, uh, Josh Graves and Kenny Baker. Oh, okay. Uh, they toured together for many yeah. years. And he uh, left them and went to uh, playing for John Hartford. And he was John's guitar player oh, wow. up until John uh, passed away. And uh, Chris, at this particular uh, bluegrass gathering, um, like I said, no, there wasn't many people there. There was only one band. And he said, hey, he said, you're a fiddle player. He said, why don't we jam? Why don't you come play with us? And I was probably, I don't know, 13 years old maybe. And uh, I was all about it. And so got my fiddle and got to play. And, and uh, for some reason they decided to ask me if I would uh, want to play in their band and if I'd want to come down and practice on Wednesday nights in Marshall, North Carolina. And I took them up on the offer and – uh, Chris Sharp sat me down with some Flat and Scruggs records, and he started explaining some of the timing um, dynamics they had going on at, at that time, what the bass was doing different, and, and specifically showed me what the bass was doing that might be different than what you would hear in other bands, right? Mm -hmm. Specifically what Lester was doing on guitar, um, but also what the fiddle player was doing. Um, on these particular recordings that we were listening to this day on the red box set of the Bear Family Flat and Scruggs oh, yeah, box set. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, What's that one, 48 to 52, something like that? I think later than that. I think it's, uh, I think, the, I could be wrong, but I think it's, the 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 next one up is the blue box set, and yeah, I yeah. think it is later uh, like 58, 59 and up. Okay. I so think this the, the first one goes about through four, the, about the mid-50s anyway. 48, 55, 58, somewhere Something around Something like that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a great one. It is. It Well, in, it, in my opinion, it's it's what it it was their hate, the music they made in their heyday that really set them up for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Um, they were all full of energy and on fire. And that's one thing that Chris explained to me that Benny's fiddle playing was a little bit different than other fiddle players. Rather than being more of a backup instrument. Are you talking about Sims? Uh, Benny Martin. Benny Martin. Yes. There's two, two, There's two. I know, right? Both got, of them, yeah, Right, yeah. so Benny Sims was the first fiddle player. Yes, yes. And then after Benny, uh, uh, Sims, um, I think has come Benny Martin. There might be a, a couple in there. Um, but, but Benny Martin was the last prominent player. One. Yeah, 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 Benny Martin, and then after him was Paul Warren, and it was Paul Warren. From Rest then on yeah, out. yeah. Um, but with Benny Martin's fiddle playing specifically, it, he played with as much dominance as the band as Earl played on the banjo. They didn't call him the Big Tiger for nothing. No, yeah, no. He was really, I, I think, one of the first fiddle players that played side right beside the banjo. And um, uh, I appreciated that. And from that point on... Were, were there any of these particular recordings of Benny Martin that really stuck out to you that really caused like a wow moment? Yeah. Um, if I Should Wonder Back Tonight, it's one of the greatest fiddle kickoffs in the world. 
Um, of course, uh, someone took my place with you is one of my all-time favorites. Um, don't let your deal go down. Yeah. I mean, I can really name them all day long. But uh, even to this day, those particular recordings, specifically the fiddle, I mean, everything about it was great. But the fiddle playing, even today, is is it's hard to find recordings uh, of that smooth and that dynamic yeah. and that uh, drive in every instrument, not just the banjo. When you when you hear something like "Don't Let Your Deal Go Down," it's no wonder that when that came across the radio airwaves, WSM or whoever, that the whole world turned upside down. Absolutely, it was as. It was as fresh and exciting and artistic, but also as commercially appealing mm-hmm. as anything else that was coming out. And it sounded unlike anything else that was coming out at the same time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Lester and Earl had uh, something very special. They, every piece of their outfit was uh, exceptional. Not just, not just um, a couple instruments uh, and then having uh, fillers where you needed. They, they all really could hold their own. And I think that's what made uh, Flat Scruggs uh, very unique mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. Uh, you also you mentioned Benny Martin. You have and Benny Sims. You have a big Paul Warren influence in your fiddling as mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, there's a and now now Paul. I love Paul's shuffle. Paul could Paul always was good about playing with such a groove. It was always easy to hear where the beat was when he played. Um, uh, and he was famous for playing the Georgia Shuffle, but he he was really good and he was he was unique, uh, really. All those fiddle players were. Every one of them had their had a very unique sound. Jimmy Shoemate, uh, Paul Warren, Benny Sims, Benny Martin, Gordon Terry played on a few of the. And now Gordon Terry was never a member, but he uh, played on uh, some some sessions for yeah. Flat Scruggs. How did being a student of this old traditional style of bluegrass fiddling help you even when with more contemporary bands that were coming out, you know, 50 yeah. years after that, like mm-hmm. Doyle and Rhonda? Mm-hmm. How, what, what elements of, of that traditional style of fiddling could you take with you and apply to different types of sounds and different types of settings? Well, the notes did not necessarily always fit, right? But I think the energy and the concept of being dominant, um, which sometimes is where the tone is. In order to pull a good, rich tone, sometimes you have to be a little um, um, dominant with your instrument. Yeah. Um, Same could be said for a strong thumb on the banjo, a strong right thumb, you know, a strong, uh, strong roll, um, and I feel that uh, also on the fiddle. You know, I think there's some differences. Like Kenny Baker was a great fiddle player. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, an amazing tunesmith. He'd come up with some amazing tunes. Um, and he, his style really fit Bill well. Um, but, again, it didn't have that dominance. And I, I feel that uh, the music today, uh, some people call it mash grass. Right or, or or whatever you know, whatever style uh, you choose to to play or or whatever uh, you call uh, your style of music, uh, it's it's either really good tone and prominent musicianship, um, or it's not. You know, I don't I don't really don't think there's that big a difference between contemporary music and traditional music. It really is, is, is different notes, but the concept is still the same. You still want to play with great tone. You still want to play with drive and aggression. I mean, if you've got a banjo beside of you, you need to be playing with, uh, with uh, the same um, dynamics that the banjo is playing with, no, in, no matter what situation. Um, but it was hard for me to also... Um, be as confident in the key of B and B flat as I was G and A. I think that's probably some of the bigger differences. Um, growing up, uh, listening to Lester and Earl's music, 
you know, they've done a lot of stuff in the key of, uh, of F, in the key of E, C, G, A. Um, they didn't do a lot of stuff in B and B flat. And some of the bluegrass jam sessions you go to today, sometimes they'll want to get in B and stay there for a few hours. Yeah. And that was very different for me. Um, I had to really listen to a lot of different musics that I had not listened to before to understand a, a concept and to get comfortable playing in these keys. Um, you know, Terry Balkum is famous for leaving his capo in the key of B, even when it's in the case, right? <laughs> but not only listening to different styles to have an understanding of what this particular style of contemporary music might be. And and, and there's the Lonesome River Band style. There's a, a Doyle Lawson style. Um, so... I had to go and, like I said, listen to different music, listen to different fiddle players. Stuart Duncan has probably influenced me more than um, anyone else of this generation's fiddle, out of this generation's fiddle fiddlers. And don't get me wrong, I learned a whole lot from Aubrey Haney. Um, listened to Aubrey Haney's music a whole lot. Uh, Ron Stewart, uh, Michael Cleveland, Jason Carter, um, and. And I also feel there's a um, Stewart uh, plays with such tone and taste at every turn. Anything he plays, if he's doing a session, and he plays a he plays a, a track, plays on a track, they'll say, "Hey, do it a little differently," and he'll do it completely different. Or they'll say, "Hey, change this up a little bit, just this one part," and he'll change the whole thing up. But every time he plays, it sounds like it fits. It's tasteful, and the tone's there. Um, and so I had to go, and, and luckily for me, Stewart was one of the go-to fiddle players and still is a go-to fiddle player for Rhonda Vincent and her recordings, who I currently play for. And so um, going to play for her, transitioning from a very traditional music to Melvin Goins to Doyle Lawson, who was very much contemporary compared to Melvin Goins, and then... Yeah. And then Rhonda's music is is got some contemporary edges, such as um, some slow uh, uh, country esque yeah. ballads, and uh, and she does sing also a lot in the key of B and B flat. And luckily for me, Stuart plays on a lot of her recordings, and so it gave me an opportunity uh, at the same time just listening to her recordings to know her music, but also to understand uh, Stuart's technique and and why he does what he does. And uh, and I'm still currently, uh, it's it's a work in progress for me. All right, fellas, it's time to care about your hair. I was just like you. Doing my hair meant hairsprays and gels that would either leave my hair crunchy or greasy. So what would I do? I'd throw in a ball cap on my way out the door and call it a day rather than fool with my hair. Then I found Samson's Hair Care. Their hair pomade is the best, truly. It has a matte finish, so your hair doesn't look wet and oily, and it's made with essential oils and other all-natural ingredients. has an all-day hold as well, so you can be confident that your hair will look as good in the evening as it did when you left the house. And it smells great, too. Great hair is a staple in bluegrass. Just look at Del McCurry and Larry Sparks. Samson's knows this. That's why they're offering Walls of Time listeners 10% off. Visit samsonshaircare.com and use code BLUEGRASS to save 10% on your order. It's like Samson from the Bible. His hair was legendary, and now yours can be too. Samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS at checkout to save 10% off the best hair pomade you'll ever buy. That's Samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. And now, back to Walls of Time. Uh, you mentioned Melvin Goins. Yeah. You, you had to know we were going there. <laughs> What are some things you learned and saw as a 14-year-old boy going on the road with Melvin <laughs> Goins? Well, I got to say, um, Melvin's a very unique character. Absolutely. He's a very, very good man. Um, he, was, he was wonderful to me, um, giving me the opportunity. He was excited about the type of fiddle playing that I was playing at the time, and uh, it, it luckily for me, it fit what he did. I didn't have to adjust a whole lot because he was playing the music currently that I had grew up listening to and trying to play and uh, and learning. So um, 
But uh, Melvin taught me how to be a good man. He taught me how to be honest. Mm -hmm. When you work for someone, it's easy if you're honest. Yeah. It's easy if you're if you are just who you are and uh, and you're up front with everything. At times, I felt Melvin was a little too good. I felt he had been could be taken advantage of at times. Yeah. Um, and even when that happened, he showed he didn't really care. Um, as long as uh, they called him back to do a show, or as long as he had dates, um, he was a good man. He Absolutely. really was. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> and he's a funny fella too. He was very gullible. We would sit and make up stories on the bus, knowing. So his bunk was right next to the living room area of the bus, with a uh, a little window spot, uh, just a space, a square that he could hear through. And we would, when we would know he was back there in the wake, we would start talking about random things, just to get his attention. And for long, he certainly would come. At, Boy, that really happened. Tell me about that. Now we go into telling him elaborate stories. But uh what's well, one of the best ones? Oh man. <laughs> oh, let me think. <laughs> what should I tell? Um uh Melvin was on the bus and he was brushing his teeth, getting ready for the show, and he had Listerine. And so he gargled with some Listerine and he ended up swallowing some of it. And uh uh, John McNeely was a bus driver and guitar player at the time. And so John McNeely come on the bus, and Melvin's back there making noise. He said, what's wrong, Melvin? He said, oh, he said, I swallowed some of Listerine. He said, oh, you didn't. He said, yeah, I did, John. He said, that ain't good. He said, you're going to get sick. Melvin said, do what? John said, you're going to get sick to your stomach. That is not good. Really? Melvin said, what should I do about it? John said, well, you need to drink your two gallon of water and you need to puke yourself. And said, once you do that and you get it out of your system, you'll be, you'll be much better. You'll be fine. You've got to do that first or you're just going to get sick. Melvin said, I can't do that. And Sean Dare said more about it, went back and got ready for the show. And after the show, we went to the merch table and sold merch. Melvin went back to the bus. And so on the way back, John heading to the bus, and he gets back to the door, and he can hear something. Somebody's behind the bus. And sure enough, Melvin was back there behind the bus, and he had his finger down his throat. He come around, he said, Melvin, what, what are you doing? And Melvin had a had a uh, uh, an empty jug and a half a jug of water sitting in front of him. He said, I tried to get that last gun down. He said, I couldn't. I done all I could. He said, I'm puking myself now. And so there you go. <laughs> He's a good man, but he was a little oh. bit gullible. He was, uh, you got you to gotta be give careful us, what you say. Oh, you got to give us another good Melvin story. <laughs> well, John McNeely was, had, uh, he was in the hospital having a procedure done on his prostate. And so... I don't know if it's one we can tell go on ahead, the radio. Go ahead. So, but uh, John Mealy, John McNeely's getting some work work done on his prostate, and so we got to fill in for the show. Sure enough, uh, Melvin's in his in his room getting ready. Me and Billy Rose at the time, Billy was the bass player, uh, is sitting up front, and so he winked at me, giving me the go ahead to. So whatever he says, just go along with it and build upon that if I can. And so he started talking about John and how he had just gotten off the phone with John not long ago and they'd found out what was wrong with John. And I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, what was it? What was causing him all of his problems? He said, well, he said one of his ovaries exploded. One of his ovaries just swelled up real big and exploded. And about that time, Melvin Goins come out from the back. Melvin said, uh, "Now do what?" He said, uh, "You talked to you talked to John." He said, "Yeah, I talked to John." He said, "He's doing good right now, and everything's going good." But what was wrong with him? And of course, he told him what he what he had just told me. He said, "You're kidding me." 
He says, ovaries got started swelling? I said, yeah. Melvin said, I told him all that red meat was going to get to him eventually <laughs> at some point in time. And because uh, John, anytime we go to a restaurant, John would order a steak almost every time. And so me and Billy, we thought that was the funniest thing. <laughs> and so uh, we never said no more about it, and John didn't say any more about it. And we went and played the show. <laughs> and on my way back to the record table, I passed Melvin. And as I'm passing by him, I'm walking slow, and I can overhear he's telling this couple that's in their early 20s that the reason John wasn't there at the show that he was uh, getting work done and he was uh, had to get one of his ovaries taken out because it had exploded. And I laughed all the way to the bus. I couldn't wait to tell the rest of the guys. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's great. You yeah. got to tell us one more. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, boy, that's a rough one. All right, I do have I do have another Melvin story. Okay. Now this story did not exactly happen while I was in the band. This happened a few years before I was in the band, but it was probably the one that sticks out in my mind the most. Um, Melvin Goins had a had a uh, a few really good fiddle players play with him yeah. along the along the way. Well, one of my favorites uh, was also the fiddle player for Ralph Stanley, a guy named James Price. Oh yeah. And so um, James Price had uh, been in a band for a few years, and he had uh, decided to make his exit and go uh, go play with Ralph Stanley. And so in, in the bus, everybody has their own bunk, have appropriated bunks. Uh, James had uh, one of the bottom bunks, and there was actually space under his bunk, uh, like you would be at home under a bed, to put some stuff. Well, Melvin at that time in that particular bus didn't have a bathroom. And so um, whenever the boys would have to do number one, sometimes they would have a container and they would relieve themselves in a container and and then throw the container out. Well, James had been off the bus for about six months. And um, anybody that knows Melvin knows that he's a... He was a bit of a penny pincher. And so uh, this is the middle of July. He's getting ready to sell his bus. And so he's cleaning out the entire bus, but he, he won't turn the generator on and spend the fuel money to run air conditioning. So it's, needless to say, in Catlinsburg, Kentucky, in the middle of July, it's extremely hot. and Especially in a stuffy bus. In yeah. a stuffy bus, that's right. And he's working with a flashlight where he can't see very well. And he sees something under the bunk, under James's bunk. <clears throat> and he's, all he really sees at first is a pair of sweatpants. And, um, and he realizes sweatpants is around a jug, and it's a milk jug. And uh, Melvin got to pull on that jug, and apparently it was pried under there a little bit it was stuck and so Melvin jerked on that jug and little did he know it was a flip top on that jug and when he jerked that jug (laughs) at that uh, 93 degree uh, uh, yellow water went all over him (laughs) oh no oh yeah oh and you know what every time he would tell that story he would get mad I mean he would genuinely (laughs) get mad and be wanting to confront James every time he told the story. Oh boy, yeah. So Oh, we we loved old Melvin. Man. I know, I know. Probably not some of the proudest moments, but definitely the most memorable. Oh yeah, absolutely. So how did you get the gig with Rhonda Vincent in the Rage? Um I was uh, had was working with Doyle and um she called and, and wanted to know um what my intentions were, if I intended on staying there for a long time or um, what the possibilities for the future would be. And then I told her, I said, well, I'm, I'm content where I'm at, um, but uh, if you want to make an offer, I'm always happy to hear what you have in mind. And um, so, and at that time she had 
just started working with Martha White. She was had a Martha White sponsorship. So this must have been right after the Storm Still Rages came out? This is correct. It was right after Storm Still Rages. And um, and so the sponsorship pretty much provided her a bus and transportation, which um, enabled her to not have that cost. Yeah. Her overhead her automatically overhead. goes down. That's correct. That's correct. And so um, she offered me, uh, she made an offer that I uh, was hard to refuse. And as much as I regretted leaving Dole, um, I, I was looking forward to seeing what um, Rhonda had to bring. Uh, Rhonda has got a particular drive about her. Not that Dole doesn't. Yeah. But Rhonda... And if you're around her uh, for any amount of time, you realize she's got a tremendous amount of energy. She's like the Energizer Bunny. She really is. And for me, I like working for her because she she doesn't expect that from me necessarily. But <laughs> that's her, you know. And I um, um, appreciate, I, not, I still appreciate, and I've been working for her for 18 years, and her drive has not dropped one little bit. Mm-mm. I mean, she is still, from the moment she wakes up, she is a go-getter. Um, she wakes up, and she's ready to tackle 20 things. I get up. I'm ready to take, I'm ready to take an hour to myself and then think about five things, right? <laughs> so, um, but um, I do appreciate her energy um, and the music that she was making at the time. Um, Tom Adams and Michael Cleveland was in a band, um, and so I've always been a, a big fan of Michael's fiddle playing and Michael's style. Um, so I thought it would be a, a um, an okay fit. I, I probably didn't realize what I was getting myself into. Um, all I was trying to do was work on the 15 songs that she gave me to work on. Um, but uh, what an opportunity. And, uh, and how old were you? Uh, I was 17 when she called. I went and done some dates in November um, and uh, with her to see how the music felt. Yeah. And I joined her band January 1st. I was 17. I turned 18 um, that February. Wow. And at for those that aren't familiar with Rhonda's history, at that time is when she had absolutely came back and just plum took over, just about. She was yeah. one of the hottest things going in, in, not in bluegrass and beyond, not just <clears throat> this business. So I'm sure that at 17, soon to be 18, that was probably quite a learning experience, not just musically, but just in general. Yeah, it was. Um well, we started doing a lot of TV things uh, right off the bat. Um, it was right before um, uh, One Step Ahead album came out. Um, and on uh, course with Storm Still Rages, she had the single um, Storm Still Rages. That was the single. And on uh, One Step Ahead of the Blues, um, You Can't Take It With You was a single. And so um, these singles were more acoustic country oriented than bluegrass. So there again, it was a whole new approach for me, Um, which don't get me wrong. I loved, even though Doyle was always considered a a contemporary artist, his music at that time when I worked with him was still uh, very much in a a traditional vein um, as far as... um, hard driving music's concerned um and little did i know the learning that i was going to get and the learning that i needed um when i joined ronda ronda's mm-hmm. group in fact it was a few years before i ever played on a record of hers um she, ronda is good about not sacrificing quality um and uh she not that she didn't want to use the musicians in her band um, but when she made uh, um, Back Home Again, 
um, that was an album comprised of mostly session musicians. And, in, and until she got that formula on stage, she wasn't going to sacrifice her records for the people that she was able to find to hire, you know. And so luckily for me, she gave me the opportunity uh, to grow um, while I was with her. And she found an opportunity that uh, suited her to have me play on a record. And uh, and I, I, I've told her this from day one. I still tell her the same thing. As long as you pay me for the session I come and work for you for, I don't care if you use me on the song or not. It is, it, it's your project. Yeah. I work for her. I expect to get paid for the work that I play for the road shows. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't have any expectations. It's, just, mm-hmm. it's her bus, and she's been driving it for a long time, and it, she does very well. What do you think some of the biggest misconceptions are about Rhonda Vincent? One of the biggest misconceptions um, that people have of Rhonda, and I think it's because of her energy. She has such an energy. She's always a go-getter. They assume that she's a taskmaster, uh, and she is for herself. And she, we know what the expectations are. Like So uh, me and a uh, uh, double player take care of the merchandise. Um, the guitar player takes care of the, getting the instruments to the stage and back to the bus. Um, the other two guys in the band take care of the sound equipment, setting it up. We have a, we carry our own uh, in-ear system. So we all know what our jobs are and what's expected of us um, within that job. And um, we already know that going in. And so she doesn't really have expectations beyond what what we already know our job is. Um She's not a taskmaster. She doesn't sit back with a whip. Um, and what I love about Rhonda is um, she's willing to, in fact, she does. She gets out in the bus, and she does all the inventory, the merchandise, and so forth. And every time she gets out there, they tell her, don't you think you have someone else could do that for you? But Rhonda's not going to ask you to do something she's not willing to do herself, and mm-hmm. she usually she usually does. Yeah. Yeah. What are some other things you've learned from watching Rhonda and being her band? I've learned what it means to spend time with your fans and give them the opportunity um, to meet you, to shake your hand, give you a hug, get a picture with you, and talk about what any whatever's on their heart as long as they want to talk. I've seen her stand in autograph lines for three hours wow. to the point that she has blisters on her feet more than once. Now, part of that is because she chooses to wear shoes that look good and is not comfortable or good for her feet. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, more than once I've seen her stand out uh, three hours and and talk to people and give them her 180%. And where me and the rest of the guys, we just want her to go on the bus so people quit buying merch so we can get off our feet. (laughs) You know, uh, we can take a break or go have a drink or whatever. Um but that's also why her fans are so loyal. Uh, that's why they come to so many shows. And um, that's why that she is, uh, she always goes over and beyond for us outside what she owes us, right? Yeah. Uh, let's say we're in a place uh, we don't have, let's say we're out west somewhere, we don't have time to come back home. Um, we don't want to have the cost of fuel coming back to Nashville and then heading back out west. So she would take it upon herself to go find a theme park or go find a, a, a professional baseball team playing somewhere uh, or whatever it is, and she'll make a plan. She'll say, hey, what do you guys want to do? And she'll pay for it. She'll flip the bill. Um, and she does this uh, not because she has to, because she wants to. She wants to show us that appreciation. Uh, and the fans and her loyal following provide her that. Um, and so it's all it's all a big picture thing. You know, it, if you want to do good and be successful, sometimes all you really have to do is be good to people and listen to people. Mm-hmm. And give him be willing to give them your time and attention. I mean, there are so many bands that go out and do their show, um, and some of them don't want to come out and sign. Some of them don't come out and sign. Some of them come out and sign for thirty minutes to an hour, and then when they're tired, they they shut down and they say we'll be back after a while or 
Um, and and that don't get me wrong, we will shut down the record table after a while, but it's after the last fan, it's after nobody is is in line to talk to Rhonda anymore. Um, and I think that is watching her do that day in and day out um, has been a, a lesson to me. Uh, it's not just about the music. It's not only what you're doing on stage. It's how you treat people, and it's it's how you present yourself off stage. She's uh, we go we play performing arts theaters. Well, usually they have a roped line uh, for her to sign up, and she's usually they have her behind a table. And the first thing she says is, "I don't want a chair. I'm not going to sit down when people are standing in line to speak to me." Um, I want to stand up and have a conversation. I don't want there to be a rope. I don't want it to be formal. I want them to just be able to come up to me and talk to me, and that's the way she likes it. Um, something else I ha really admire about her is how well she's able to conform a show. So we never use a set list. We've never. The only time we ever use a set list is if we're playing on TV or for whatever reason – we had to submit a set list, and then at that point, you or only do copyright thing. Or you whatever. only do what you submitted, yeah. and it's hard for her to follow that. But she she's careful about how she plans it out, and she, even then, when she's she's very careful about the songs that she picks. Um, she's and when I when I say how she can how she puts together a show, um, so when we go out, she wants to hit them hard. She wants to do something lively. I think anybody would. And then she goes from there. There's a certain amount of songs that we do in this key, and we can do them together. We can do these songs over here. But what she'll start doing is she'll do a song, and she'll observe the audience's reaction. If she doesn't get the reaction that she's, she wants, she'll start changing the style of the song until she figures out what this particular audience is looking for. Because the people in Virginia may not be uh um a, may not love this or, or respond the same way to the same music that the people in um Delaware are going to respond to or New Jersey or or out west to California so in every venue is 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 kind of like a jam session or a local jam session you go to every every place really has its niche style of music yeah. And uh, some places like the hard drive and grassy stuff. Some places like the slow, pretty stuff. Some places right. like the more country stuff. You know, right. you never know. That's right. And and then she also she usually gives a time at the end if anybody's got any requests. You know, but she's always trying to be conscious of what um, the audience is looking for, and you know, and some people, some audiences just don't respond the same. But she's not going to stop trying to figure out what. What to do. So she never goes by a set list. I feel sometimes if you go by a set list, it's like it's hard to have a a two-way communication with the audience. Because if you have a set list, it's almost knowing what you're going to say before going into a conversation. Yeah. And it doesn't leave room for that. That give and take. Exactly. Yeah. And so that is definitely something that I have learned and uh, picked up from Rhonda uh, that I hope to carry on with me. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day -day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code Bluegrass to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code Bluegrass to save 15% off your first purchase. And now back to Walls of Time. Now, before we wrap up, you also uh, teach here at East Tennessee State University. Yes. Uh, what sort of a blessing has that been to be able to pass on um, to help foster the next generation of bluegrass pickers? 
words can't describe what a blessing it is. Um, when I first started teaching here, uh, I I really wasn't looking to teach. Um, and in fact, I'm on the road so much, uh, I never dreamed that I would have a second secondary job um, or have time for one. Um, so when I first started teaching lessons, it was really something that um, it was providing an opportunity the kids didn't have at the time. Um, and I thought of, I mean, it, you can teach them notes, but uh, most of the kids that are coming to school here, more than just learning music, uh, they have an idea that they want to do this for a living while they're studying it. And... Um, um, I feel that being able to um, give them advice from someone who currently works on a road and has worked on a road um, is uh, an opportunity that they really need yeah. um, to to set them up and to you know it's not about how many chords you know it's not about how fast you can play. It's more about how well you get along with people. When you're when you're touring on a forty five foot bus, you can't get away from one another. Yeah. So I can tell you You can't just go to your dorm no. if you get tired of somebody. That's yeah. right. And so it's life lessons uh to teach these kids and to give them realistic ideas of what to expect when they go out and they try to get a job um on their own in the music business. Um um, so I thought it'd be good to give that up, provide that opportunity. But, um, even though that might've been my goal going into it, it quickly turned, uh, to a learning experience for me, uh, not to only be inspired musically, but to get to know these kids on a personal level and watch them grow and, uh, help cultivate them as far as they want to take it. And, to actually see some of these kids uh, be able to apply what they've learned um, on the road and uh, apply what they learn in their life, even though even if they don't end up on the road, um, you know, some people realize while coming to school here that they don't want to be cramped on a bus with a band. I mean, if you can't get along with the people that you're in a band with here for a semester. It may not be for you, right? That doesn't say that the experience was a waste. They still take that and apply that. Just because they're not singing on the road or professionally doesn't mean that it's not going to help them grow and become um, uh, uh, wonderful people and be able to apply what they've learned here into what, whatever they do. Um, but also, uh, being a being able to major in bluegrass country, old-time and Celtic music, brings a lot of kids here that don't have any other focus. They would have to study, uh, used to, before the, the major and minor was here, people would come here to study other things, right, besides music. Just to be, just to be in the music program, these yeah. were electoral classes yeah. back then. Just, yeah, right. just on the side. Yeah. That's correct. And so, um, being that you can actually major and study the music that you love. It's really bringing kids out of the woodwork and talented kids that have no interest in anything else. Um, that might only be interested in in playing music. It's also gotta be cool too, because I'm sure some of these kids that can come here and major in that, they probably don't have many other opportunities to learn about this music or to gain that experience outside of being able to go to a college. Like if, you know, you're in Walla Walla, Washington, or some place that maybe you know you were blessed to grow up here in East Tennessee, exactly. where you you could gain an education right. without going you know to college. So where when you're 14, 15, you can you those opportunities were readily available there for the picking. That's where correct. I'm sure some of these students, it's a huge resource for them. Well, I mean for all of them, but yeah. particularly some of those that maybe um, don't have those that same ability yeah that's right and for instance um when people ask me uh how long did you take lessons what got you to this point i took lessons for a few years from benny sims and and david yates 
but jamming with local musicians and putting yourself in an atmosphere where people better than you are performing and playing, um, um, putting yourself in an atmosphere where you're being put on the spot to jam and maybe play on a song that you've never played before, all these things help you um, uh, they start training your ear whether you realize it or not and so for the students that come here at DTSU for a lot of them I hear that's one of the um, one factor they didn't have in the area they grew up in they didn't have the opportunity to have uh, bluegrass musicians as neighbors live down the street and be able to go to these local jam sessions and so a lot of them are uh, deprived of of um, uh, a jam session atmosphere, which I think is critical in playing tasteful improv. Yeah, in well, general. And, and as you know, uh, bluegrass is part industry, but it's also a huge part of its community. That's right. And to be able to cultivate an environment where those kids be surrounded in a, in a community to soak that stuff up is so vital. And, and we're lucky with uh, today's technology. You know, a lot of these kids, what they don't find in jam sessions, they look up on YouTube. Um, they are able to get a concept of, of, of good music, good bluegrass music, hopefully. Um, and, and that's another thing. You know, when you, when you take someone, especially someone who's been playing from an uh, early age, and they only have a love for one thing, if they only have a love for bluegrass music or Celtic music, um, chances are they have uh, made a lot of ground if that's been their only interest. And so it's u- it's unique for us to get to work with such talented kids yeah. and so forth. Now, helping uh, this next generation grow as you've been doing, where do you see bluegrass music heading in the future? Everywhere but here. And that's it's it's going to. I think there's going to be some great traditional music. I think there's going to be. You're always going to have people pushing the envelope, um, and bringing a contemporary and a new edge to everything. Um, but uh, I feel there's just a a, a strong hold in uh, traditional driving bluegrass as well. Um, not to say that contemporary music can't be driving. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, I'm currently working with a band of kids right now that are only interested in uh, traditional bluegrass music. And I mean traditional style bluegrass music uh, to where they told the guitar player not to play a closed B chord with uh, the third finger on the B string making a D note instead of letting the, the B string ring out, which is considered an open G chord. They specifically told him their first practice, we want you to be in this band because you're a great guitar player, but we want you to play traditional style, which means open G chord all the time. And so, you know, uh, and I think it's fun. You know, it this is a good place for them to come and and play the music that they want and they love to play. But it's also a place that they can come and learn. And even though they may not uh, accept... Uh, at first, other styles of bluegrass. But coming here also gives them an opportunity to think outside the box and realize that, okay, this isn't Earl Scruggs. Um, this isn't even J.D. Crow, But it can be good. Yeah. Just because it's not what you feel you love at the moment doesn't mean it's not good. In fact, your taste is going to change. Yeah. And it and it's fun for me and us as teachers to get to sit, sit back and and watch these kids grow, watch their opinions change, watch them uh, struggle to make it to a few classes or to a show on time, uh, and then the next semester uh, they're there before you are, right? Yeah. And uh, so, but yeah, and it's a great opportunity here for not only the kids, but for the teachers involved. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Hunter. I appreciate it. Hunter Berry, our special guest on this edition of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Hunter's one of my favorite fiddlers in bluegrass, has been for a long time, and bluegrassers fell in love with him when he was just a teenager, working with Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver and Rhonda Vincent and the Rage. But before that, 
he had the distinguished honor of working with Bluegrass Hall of Famer Melvin Goins. Melvin is such a character in Bluegrass. We lost him a few years ago, but I don't know about you, Ty, but I always love getting to hear some good Melvin Goins stories. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think there's plenty of them out there. Uh... <laughs> I've heard some, you know, I've heard some uh, off record, uh, but yeah, good stuff. And so cool to have um, Hunter on this episode. It's I thought it was really neat because um, I know the guys in the Tipton Hill Boys. I think it was great to hear about Hunter getting with those guys and them introducing him to the intensity of uh, Benny Martin's fiddle playing. And that intensity, you know, when you go see him play live, whether it was back with Dole or even now with Rhonda, uh, he still has it, and uh, it's really great. It's what makes him one of my all-time favorite fiddle players to see play live. The Benny Martin comparisons have been ones that have followed Hunter since he was a teenager. The way he is just, he just gets into it. Well, you can tell when he's playing the fiddle, he's not thinking about anything else. And he he has more fun playing the fiddle than about anybody I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, this interview is pretty laid back, but, you know, if anybody knows Hunter, he's a he's a fun guy to to be around i I haven't uh, been around him a whole lot just really enjoyed uh, his stage presence and intensity it's really great i did not know that hunter literally learned fiddle at the feet of uh former foggy mountain boy benny sims which really makes sense as to why hunter is such a student of those first generation fiddlers like benny sims benny martin paul warren yeah that's a school of fiddle bluegrass right there and if that's your foundation you know that's that's your playing it and doing it how it should be done i think it's great oh i i agree 110 percent. and the, the way hunter talks about how there's not really to him at least it doesn't seem like there are competing views amongst traditional and progressive bluegrass picking that there's room for it all it's all based off the same principles and can all kind of fit in interchangeably i thought was a pretty cool perspective uh, particularly for a younger grasser who is uh, steeped in that old school tradition absolutely i'm glad that he's a, a young guy who's carrying that tradition on it was really great to see um uh, aspects of working with uh, the great Rhonda Vincent and how that team works together and the, ten- the intensity that she brings and that Hunter feeds off of as well. And I think there's great stories just sort of inside that band. And, uh, of course, I'm sure Rhonda is one of, uh, one of the all-time favorites out there, and hopefully she will be on this podcast sometimes in the future. Oh, I hope so. She's the queen of bluegrass for a reason. One of the hardest working people in bluegrass, period. And uh, hearing about how she runs a band and runs her business uh, from a longtime member of The Rage was uh, was a ton of fun for me. I've always been a, uh, a Ron Vincent and The Rage fan and always been a fan of Hunter Berry's fiddle playing uh, since I first saw him with Doyle Austin and Quicksilver back in the day. And I think it's so great that someone like him with that traditional... Uh, style and uh, really steeped in the original players is teaching now at ETSU. And I think that's a great uh, person to have uh, bringing that style and that uh, passion and intensity to those students. Absolutely. We even recorded this interview on the campus of East Tennessee State University, actually in the building where Hunter has a whole lot of his lessons. So a great way to tie it all in. He was a student. Now he's teaching students about bluegrass fiddle. We mentioned Rhonda Vincent and the Rage, how she's one of the leading ladies in bluegrass music. We have another leading lady in bluegrass that's going to be our special guest next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. That's right. Chris and Scott Benson, uh, the fantastic bluegrass banjo trailblazer, uh, premier banjo player for the Grascals, five-time IBMA Banjo Player of the Year. And you sat with her outside the Station Inn uh, over the summer and interviewed her, and she's coming up on the next episode. That's right. 2018 recipient of the Steve Martin Banjo Prize for Excellence in Bluegrass Music. Uh, Kristen is such a joy to be around. And we recorded this interview, like you said, outside the station in, in her car before the Grascals played a sold out show at uh, one of Nashville's most historic venues. That'll be next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. We encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review the program. Share it with a friend who you think would enjoy learning more about the history of bluegrass music from these leaders and legends themselves. Where can folks go to connect with us online, Ty? They can visit the website at wallsoftimepodcast.com. 
Walls of Time Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Walls of Time Pod on Twitter, and they can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, everywhere you listen to podcasts. And of course, listen to our Spotify Walls of Time playlist where we'll be adding a bunch of Rhonda Vincent's great music this week for you all to listen to and catch up on all your favorite Rhonda Vincent songs. Hopefully you'll join us next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast when we hop in the car with Kristen Scott Benson and take a ride uh, down the winding trail of her bluegrass journey. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.